Welcome to ArchiSpeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. What are the kinds of things that, that you're noticing about behavior and how this or any other kind of influence, there's lots of different hot issues going on right now, right? There's political stuff, there's right. law, there's, like I said, California's not even in stage one opening yet. We're talking about maybe a month away. We might start to go back to the office, but now with these new spikes, we might not. We might push that out even further. So like all, with all these different influences, what are some of the things that we, you and I, have been observing about people, right? The people who actually use the spaces that we design and build for them. So I stood in line the other day to go to the bakery, right, to get a coffee and to get a, a croissant. And I've noticed throughout the COVID-19 thing that, so when it first started and everybody's out, you know, wearing their masks, I felt like, and I personally felt like, there was a lot more hand gesturing going on <laughs> to be like, hi, right? Mm -hmm. Like just waving. Because I felt like there was so, so much fear and uncertainty in the air, right? It was just kind of this, you, it was palpable. And it was like, are we going to be able to go to the store to get the stuff that we need? Is there going to be the stuff that we need there? Are we going to have to stand in a line? How long is that line going to be? How many of these things are we going to be able to get? There was all of these unknowns, right? And so as we've kind of dealt with that, there was a lot of, because you couldn't see half of somebody's face anymore, right? It was like, there was lots of hand-waving. Mm -hmm. Hi, right. it's okay. Like, we're in this together. I noticed that a lot. I noticed a lot of people, like, yeah. really expressive with their eyes and, and hand gesturing and stuff. And so then, like, last week I was out, and I've noticed that has changed a lot. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I've, I've got kind of like some takes from even the early days of it's so funny to talk about early days and we're only talking about just you know how humanity is reacting to all of this in just a few short months i think yeah you know, it feels the, like years the, though, right? the <laughs> communicate yeah like the communicative behaviors between people are just so let's just say back in the old days of february when yes. we actually like you know walked you know from walk through a store and you know, maybe you saw somebody and you kind of gave them a, a, you know, a nod or kind of like a, a quick gesture or something like that. And then the evolution of this now, okay, social distancing, face masks, all of these different things. It, it's, it's really interesting. So, you know, when you, you know, you're talking about the very expressive face and things like that, you know, early on, because everybody seemed to be you know, should I be here? Should I be in this, you know, grocery store getting groceries? Oh my God, here comes another person. I, I need to turn away from them, you know? Yes. And yeah. I, it would literally see as like, okay, I need to go past you. And if you're on one side of the aisle and I'm on the other side of the aisle, you know, we're, we're pretty close to the social distancing norm that we need to be of the six feet. And so we'll be fine. But then you would see them like, you know, turn their entire face away from you and just almost pretend that you're the one with the plague. Right. And so then, you know, you just, you watch that evolution throughout the months and stuff like that. And then, you know, you almost get this, people are very tired of, of not being social and not like, you know, looking at people in the eyes or not saying things to them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you got to the point of a few weeks ago now that people are, you know, far more expressive with their hands and their eyes and, I mean, it's so funny. It's like, you know, I'm I'm very expressive and use my hand and facial gestures. I never can hide anything um, when I'm talking because I'm just got an expressive face. So you can very much tell when I'm like joking, even though you can only see half of my face, you can tell when I'm trying to crack a joke or be sarcastic or things like that, because, you know, I'm just trying to like, everybody seems so tense. I am just yeah. trying to bring a little bit of levity to it. But there's still, you know, uh, you know, now I've kind of traveled through a few states and there are stark differences from being very close to D.C. where it's mandatory face mask wherever you're at. And, and everybody is very much following the rules or at least in the bubble that I live in. Everybody and even when I was hiking on the Appalachian Trail, when they opened up some of the hiking paths and stuff, you know, people were hiking with face masks on. And, and you know how hard, hard that is, you know, because yep. you're huffing and puffing and everything else. 
And so everybody was very respectful. The further and further I got west, or Midwest in this particular case, uh, the more and more you would see people very cavalier about it. I mean, today we went into a grocery store and my daughter and I were had our face masks on and people were looking at us like we were a problem to them because none of them had face masks on. The employees of the store did. And, you know, there was the social distancing stickers on the floor that says, you know, go this direction and stay six feet away and all of that other stuff. And we were following it because it, it almost became second nature to us. But yeah, everybody else was looking at us like, and, and, and there was even a point where somebody gave me a look that was pretty confrontational. I mean, nothing came of it. But, you know, the look that they gave me was just like, what the hell is wrong with you? You're just a sheep because you have that face mask on. And I'm like, simmer down, fella. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel like, like here, I, I haven't experienced that here because I think it's very much, at least in the town that I'm in, it's very much a, a face mask is mandatory kind of a, a feeling. Um, although, you know, the state mandate, which just came out last week, they came out with a new one and it's. If you're out, if you're standing in line, if you're in a store, if you're in any kind of circulation or utility kind of, you know, if you're going to the restrooms or anything like that, you've got to wear a face mask, but you don't when you're doing certain things right. like sitting at a table at a restaurant or, um, you know, there's a few different guidelines for that. But um, what I've noticed pretty strongly is now kind of like standing in line at the bakery, nobody's saying anything anymore. There aren't the hand signals anymore. And <laughs> right. granted, it, it is hard to hear people. Like, yeah. I totally get that. Um, but I kind of feel like it's turning into it more of a, I want to say car culture, but that's not the right word. It's more of like, what what's road rage, right? Where you're in this personal bubble. And I feel like the face mask has become right. Right. this shroud of anonymity where your behavior can be different than who you actually are. And, and so, right. I, you know, it's like you see the, you see somebody on the freeway here in Southern California and they're flipping people off and honking and, and like they get out of the car and they're like, you know, June Cleaver and they, they're Jekyll and Hyde on some mm -hmm. level. And I kind of, this isn't that level, but it's like, it is like different behaviors depending on the shroud that you're behind. And so I think a lot of people see that car as like this. Right protective shield where you can't hear me you can't really see me you definitely can't see like 90 percent of me so you don't really know what i look like so there's this i get to be anonymous and i get to be different and i kind of feel like that's happening with the face masks and i that does bug me like for sure is that you can't see those yeah. expressions and you can't you don't get that level of communication and it makes me feel like it's interesting. I guess it's just interesting to watch the behavior change as things progress and how quickly that changes and how quickly people adapt to it in good and bad ways. And so then I start to wonder, like, how does that translate into the classroom? A classroom full of kids where some of them are super unruly and a teacher has to deal with that. What happens now, right, when other kids... Like, do they, do they, you know, what, what's that behavior going to be like? What's it going to be like in the library? What's it going to be like? You know, there's so many different scenarios that we kind of design for. And there is a certain level of accountability built in because you're not anonymous. And now there's more anonymity because people are wearing face masks. Like, how does that, and, and, and then do we even have to worry about that? Is this just temporary? Like, do we know? I don't even know if we know, but is it something we don't really have to deal with long term? So what's interesting is that you know that I am working on a building right now for Hopkins, you know, health, and it is a building that is going to be a um, a medical research building. Uh, you know, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine will be the you know occupant, and there's going to you know each of these um, you know eleven levels of lab spaces are going to be. Um, you know, they're going to be occupied with, you know, a variety of different research and stuff going on. So as we move through this and there's, you know, certain different lab types that we're, we're building throughout the building. Um, and so, you know, there are different levels of, you know, um, you know, the, I, I learned a term, you know, most recently the BSL, the bio safety levels and, you know, what that diff that means in certain um, you know, certain, uh, types of environments and, 
you know, so they were talking about, you know, the different types of BSLs, you know, BSL two, BSL three, and what those really mean. And, you know, should we be looking to make this building, you know, a more stringent, you know, bio uh, safety level than, you know, what we're currently designing to, and what would that mean? And, you know, then we've, you know, they, they've reached out to us and they've asked us, okay, we want you to start taking a look at, now we understand that, you know, and they, they, you know, of all people, um, my gosh, they, you know, almost everything that I've heard come out of the, you know, Hopkins school of public health, um, you know, before it's been, you know, put out onto the streets, you know, they say that, you know, this is, you know, uh, you know, you're, we're like, say Maryland, Maryland is going to peak at, you know, X time in, you know, the month of May. Sure enough, almost to the hour they, you know, that they had predicted it, you know, a couple of months prior, it, that's when we hit our peak. And then, you know, they talked about all these things. And so I listened to them actually pretty, you know, pretty carefully because to be quite honest with you, that's what they do for a living. Like we design buildings for a living. You know, they, they researched you know, um, infectious diseases and things like that. And they look at the public health and they help, you know, direct policy on public health. And so, you know, to be quite honest with you, I listened to them a little bit or a lot of it. Um, a lot of it. (laughs) And, and so, and they, and they actually talk about what, you know, what they actually predict to see as, you know, people are thinking that the pandemic is winding down and they say yes during these months because of the, the type of virus it is. And it doesn't really, react very well, but because it is actually still around and it and is an active, you know, virus that when we actually get into the cooler, wetter months of the fall and then into the winter, we are expecting to actually see an uptick in, you know, potential rise in the pandemic. And, you know, and if that be the case, as you know, one of the one of our clients said, you know, we're going to have to learn to deal with this because this right. isn't the first, this is the, or, or sorry, this isn't the last, this is right. the first of many because of just the way that humanity and nature and everything else is starting to interact, you know, that you're going to see this more and more. And so people are going to have to learn how to live and work and exist through a pandemic because otherwise, I mean, you know, if you actually sit down and think about it, you know, you're, you know, I mean, look at, look at what happened to the economy in just this, you know, three months. We always hear our bosses or financial advisors and stuff say that you should always have a reserve of three months or more in your bank account. So if something uh, dire happens that, you know, you at least have some float time and, you know, you find it funny and, and I don't mean to get political here, but you find it funny that a lot of the people who are telling us that we should be preparing for the worst didn't prepare for the worst. Mm. <laughs> And so, you know, we have, you know, this, this economic struggle going on right now, um, where companies are closing down or shutting down or laying off or going through very long-term furloughs and stuff like that. And so we really do actually have to learn to live through some of this stuff so that, you know, our economy can pick back up and be quite honest with you. I mean, the question is, is, you know, is this a type of disease that we have to build an immunity to? through exposure or is this just something that beyond the common cold type stuff? And, you know, there's so many questions, but you know, where I was going with that is what was interesting is that they're starting to do assessments because, you know, both these projects that we're working on are joint ventures between the, you know, Johns Hopkins university and Johns Hopkins hospital. I don't know if I've ever said this before on the um, podcast before, but they're two separate entities that, you know, work together just like, you know, you have Harvard School of Medicine and you have Harvard Health and they're two different branches, but, you know, they're they're teaching hospitals and things mm-hmm. like that. And so they work very closely together. So they do ha- they do have shared resources. And what's interesting is so they have some of the top architects that are working with the uh, hospital that are actually looking at and assessing, you know, OK, what does this mean for us? You know, it, it comes down to, you know, how many people are you know, do you actually have that would normally occupy each floor of that building? And then if we enter into a social distancing type thing, how many people could you fit into that if you do like 100% social distancing? Right. Or if you do a 50% occupancy where, you know, you only, you're only allowing 50% of the total occupancy to actually be on site at one time 
And then what does that mean? You know, some people are going to be in the lab. Some people are going to be in the write-up stations. I mean, some people are going to be doing other things. And what the one that kind of triggered me when we were talking about this now, you know, think about this, that, you know, all of these universities, regardless of the medical universities or any university right now is really facing, and and you and I are, um, are facing this because we have college age children that you just have a recent graduate and I'm mine's going into his sophomore year of college. And what does that really mean to them? I mean, how are they going to be going into And and you and you and I, we design academic buildings. And so they, they started to basically look at all of their spaces on the university side of things. And they were saying, okay, if, if we overlay the social distancing, now they actually, what's interesting is they have a seven and a half foot social distancing not the six foot that the CDC, you know, says. And the reason being is because they don't actually, you know, whereas the CDC counts from the center line of the head, they actually count from the perimeter of the body. Okay. So when they're looking at this, they, they started, they started looking at this issue and they say, okay, what does that mean to all of these different spaces? And the one that stood out to me is that they had a 240 person auditorium and they overlaid social distancing they overlaid paths of travel. Then they overlaid the teaching area. Yeah. And they found out that that 240 space auditorium could seat 23 people. Yeah. <laughs> Think about the... Oh. So so you, 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 you try to fathom that. You know, it's just right. like, oh my gosh, we're, we are designing for spaces that per code can occupy this, but per pandemic, you're only getting this. And then you think about... If we think about the economic impact on a university that is yeah. expecting to have 240 bodies in that auditorium and they can right. only get 23, where do we go from there? Right. And these are the things that we need to constantly keep thinking about as we're designing these. So, yes, we all are going to be designing things for, let's call it the normal situation. And let's use the big, you know, podcast air quotes. But right. then... Everybody needs to think about if this occurs or if this, you know, comes back up, what is that really going to mean for us when we're, you know, trying to help them design these buildings and prepare them, you know, almost future proof them. Right. We actually just went through a a quick exercise to prototype a a tool that basically does what you're talking about. So, and, and our goal with this was not, not, internal but external like giving a administrator of a k-12 school or a teacher in a classroom some tools to help them understand the impact of the walls that are set in the room that they're in what that's Mm going to have Mm -hmm. on their pupil population so try to say that three times fast (laughs) so we basically (laughs) developed a um a tool that it just lives on the internet on the web and you can adjust the classroom width and length and you can tell it you know what doors and where where their locations are and then it basically creates a circulation path between the doors and then the rest of the space Mm -hmm. with all of the buffers that you're talking about you know where the teaching wall is and if there's casework or whatever it just says, okay, based on you know a six foot radius, how many six foot radius circles can we pack into this room? And it's crazy how small right. that number gets, uh, and how fast. Oh it gets, my god! Right? Yes. Depending on all the different layout permutations that there are in one school alone, right? One te- like luckily a teacher only has to worry about their room, but if you're the the high school principal or the you know the elementary school principal, and you've got an entire Right, but catalog of rooms, and everyone's a you know maybe there's some that are the same, but most of them are a little bit different for one reason or another. Uh, you you get right, a right. pretty good idea pretty quickly of like what it's going to be like to be in that space, and then how does that impact food? How does that impact schedule? How does it impact teaching? How does it impact all these other things? And you realize pretty quickly, like you've got to augment with digital, right? You've got to augment with technology. Right. Because right. how else are you going to do it? Like, I don't like that. What, what, what are your alternatives? There's not too many out there. Like, you can't do what you used to do anymore. So what are you going to do to adapt quickly? Well, what's interesting is, you know, I mean, m- my wife is a first grade teacher. And, 
she has been, you know, obviously when the pandemic and the shutdowns occurred, obviously she went home and, you know, was teaching from there. And, you know, one of the things that she said was, is that this was absolutely the worst experience that she's had, you know, because there was a learning curve and there was, you know, I mean, there's obviously, you know, discipline issues or I mean, let's not really call them discipline issues, more like paying attention issues. I mean, it is so easy for a kid to get distracted when he, she is in the comfort of their own home and, you know, they see their cat run by or, you know, mom is in the kitchen and, and, um, you know, making lunch for somebody and, and then like, you know, the brother and sister are running around and all of this other stuff. And there's so, so many distractions that you, know, you really can't have the kids focus. And one of the things that, you know, I always talk about is that first grade, just as an example, it is just this, this milestone that they're going from kindergarten. And yes, kindergarten is becoming a little bit more than just eating paste and, you know, stuffing crayons in your nose and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, you go from a, what I, what I sometimes term is a little bit more play-based education to first grade. We're actually like now it's real. You have to sit down in the, you know, you're at your desk and you really have to pay attention. And so they're really teaching you. I mean, I've got to applaud every and any and every first grade teacher out there right now that, you know, when you're, you really have got to like, you know, think about what they're doing is they're creating the habits and the behavior of future learning because yeah. they're literally taking them from these are the first, you know, like pre-K and K are the first time that kids are, you know, really being away from their parents. And so they're now kind of comfortable. And the reason why it's a little bit more play-based than, you know, rigid is because, you know, this is the first time that they've ever really been away from their parents. And so now you're throwing them into a situation where they've got to be students and sit down and pay attention and listen to Miss Phelan talk about all of this stuff. And so she is just absolutely dreading that if she starts digitally, how do you take new kids and basically set the tone for learning, you know, from here on out with them right. when they're so covered with distractions? I mean, think about how we get distracted and, you know, we try to stay professional as, you know, as, as we possibly can when we're on these, you know, Zoom chats and calls and all of these other things that we're doing uh, in the digital realm of things. But I mean, even we get distracted or even we, you know, like how many times do you know when somebody puts themselves on mute, it's because they're either, you know, going up to, you know, refill their coffee or they're not really paying attention. And I, I learned this great response because I knew the guy was not paying attention when we were talking and he came off of mute and I thought it was a beautiful response. He was like, I'm sorry you were breaking up. Can you repeat that? <laughs> like you just weren't even paying attention, dude. But I am going to use that from here on out because that's beautiful. <laughs> You're breaking up. Oh, that's great. Oh, man. Yeah, usually like I'll be, you know, because my temporary workspace is in our our bedroom. And I, and it's like my wife needs to come in and get something. So I have to mute it. I got to turn the camera off. She doesn't want to be on camera. <laughs> like, And so, yeah, it's just like these are the kinds of things that we're all adapting to. And I wonder, you know, big picture again, like going back to kids learning like i have a hard enough time right now transitioning between work and home i have a really hard time how does a kid transition right. between learning right. in an educational environment and home it's got to be way harder than it is for me even because like this is like they just learned how to do this in school they just learned how to separate the two and now they're smashed back together it's got to be really hard oh absolutely and, and so honestly you know how does that how do architects fit into that is, is that, you know, we're, you know, some of the best people suited for assessing some of these, you know, as you said, you know, developing tools and assessing spaces and finding out what they have and what they can have in kind of a, you know, pandemic mode type occupancy, which, you know, everybody, you know, is talking about, well, you know, do you think that this is going to change the building code? It, probably not, because I think this is more in my own personal opinion. I think that this is more of an administrative type um, response that you automatically know how many people you can fit within your building. But administratively, you have to figure out how many people you really want in your building. 
and how many people you feel comfortable with because and how many people will feel comfortable being in that building if you know uh oh evan just kind of sneezed Right. Does he have the COVID? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to sit next to him. Sorry, man. You right. know, six feet or not, you know, dude sneezed, you know, and so it's it's going to be very interesting, especially in the transition. Now, you know, everybody's assuming that we're going to go back to normal again, air quotes, normal. But, you know, in the meantime, there is that transitional period and it seems like it's going to be in our, you know, kind of like hyper overreactive world right now that it's going to be a long time before people are going to be comfortable with a hundred percent occupant occupied building. Yeah. It makes me even think, you know, there's so many things about buildings that people do not even think about, right? They don't think about the building's central nervous right. system or the buildings, you know, there, every exactly. building has these different systems in it, right? They don't think about the HVAC. They don't think about the way that the lighting affects them. And, Obviously, lots and lots of things have come to the surface to make people more aware of that stuff. But when you look at the spread of anything via the HVAC system, you start to think about all these existing facilities that were designed with none of that in mind. And how do those adapt? Absolutely. And and you, so, so you and I have both been to schools that were designed in the 20s and the 30s, right? Where all of the infrastructure yeah. is strapped onto the exterior of every wall and every surface that you can see <laughs> because it's impossible yeah. to get yeah. into where it's all hidden. And it makes me start to think about how are we going to make... So So what's what's interesting about that is people don't even notice that stuff, but architects do. And I think architects are really right. hung up on that stuff where most people don't care, right? Like they think of that, if, if you look at pictures of overdeveloped cities where there's 50 satellite dishes on the side of a building, not just one, right, at your home, but 50. Or there's just wires spaghettied on the outside of a building to make all that stuff work. Or they added an elevator to the Mm -hmm. side of a building, right, and it's just strapped on. There's ductwork flying everywhere. And so you start thinking about how, like, people just don't care about that kind of stuff. And we're so obsessed with the aesthetic and we're obsessed with the space but what do you do with all this existing infrastructure that's already out there? Do you just and and right. and I think a lot of that stuff is pretty interesting, right? Like I like to take photos of that stuff. I've got photos on my Instagram of like crazy electrical panels and conduit and and wiring and um, <laughs> yeah. that's going to happen more and more, right? Because you start to look at like even returning to work and people aren't allowed to use stairways in tall towers, right? Unless it's for an emergency only. You're only allowed to put two people in an right. elevator. What are you going to do? Like, well, strap some more elevators on the side of that building, right? How are you going to get people to the 70th floor quickly? It was interesting is like early on in the design decision, you know, we started talking about destination destination dispatch um, elevators and, you know, how that you can basically kind of like efficiently move people in and, in and up through this particular building that we were working on. And yeah, they're, you know not really that normal um, in most cases and it's sometimes cost prohibitive but the the interesting thing about those is that you know if you've got like 15 people waiting for the elevators you know it's going to say okay people going to floors x y and z you know you're going to take this elevator and it's going to get you there faster and if you're going to the the fifth floor and you're going to the 12th floor and you're going to this floor you're going to yep. take that elevator, that elevator, and that elevator. It's more because, of a you know, they're problem. all programmed to like run off those. Right. And it totally is, but you know, but I mean it's a it's a digitally thought out, you know, logistics problem where you basically enter in where you're going and it's going to do the thinking for you of how right. to efficiently do that. Right. And so then you then overlay again, you were talking about the logistics of things is that, you know, then you overlay the just the operational idea of all of this. And it's just like, okay, you know, you're going to have 15 people who want to go to the floors, but you're only going to allow, you know, three of them up there at a time to use this, the three elevators that you have. And so how, how efficiently are you going to be able to move people through there? Yeah. And that's why I'm saying is like, you know, the, 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 the thought of like dealing with a building pandemic wise is going to be more of an operational logistics thing. And architects will be there to be able to be best suited to help them kind of understand 
what they have and what they need. But, you know, if you think about this, now, most of the time we're building buildings and designing buildings for, you know, pretty cost conscious when we're doing it. And we're, Mm -hmm. we're thinking to ourselves, okay, you know, how do we make buildings efficient, but also, you know, reduce the overall cost, right? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, typically things are, are, are designed to the absolute minimum that they need to be. Exactly. And it's so tight. So there's no real flexibility in the whole overall design of a building. So if, if you need to run new duct work so that you can, you know, do more filtration or treat the air a little bit differently or things like that, most buildings don't really have that flexibility in them. And so then that's, it goes back to what you're saying is like strapping things along the side. I mean, if you look at the evolution of, and I'm just going to use, you know, I'm going to continue to keep using Hopkins as an example, because it's a historic site that has got historic buildings and newer buildings and old buildings and every, basically every kind of generation of building type, you know, Mm -hmm. throughout the thing. And if you just look, if you, go to the aerial map of it and you look at the evolution of these buildings, you see, okay, the mechanical system was in a big penthouse. Well, then the building, you know, use changed. And so the mechanical use changed. And so there's a greater demand. And so not only do you have everything jammed within that penthouse, but now you're adding stuff to the roof and, you know, you're building stuff on dunnage and now you're running ductwork down the side of a building and, you know, and, and you're doing all of these different things. And that's the evolution, you know, that these buildings have been forced to do. And so, you know, we have this conversation, probably you guys do too, but we have this conversation. It's like, financially, what is thinking about designing for pandemic responses going to do? It is going to make buildings, because they're going to be overly conscious, trying to get as maximum flexibility in them. And then what happens if we do actually, okay, we're going to be at 100% occupancy, but then what happens if we do have a pandemic? How do we convert that over to a half use space and things like that? And does that mean that I have to move all my offices around? Do they need to be, you know, like um, detachable partitions or, you know, do we, you know, what do we do? And, and all of these other things. And so, you know, it's interesting that, you know, there's a lot of people out there working diligently to come up with ideas. But I mean, has anybody, you know, maybe community architectural community as a whole just sat down almost like a, a share circle right. and said, Hey, let's start talking about like, Absolutely. what do you think? this design response means. Yeah, this has to be applied across the board at so many levels. This type of thing needs to be a community response so that not everybody is reinventing the wheel every single time, every single building. They're not that unique. And I think like what's interesting is you've kind of talked through this whole thing and you started off by saying you don't think that it's going to change the building code. I think you've pretty much convinced me that it is going to change the building code <laughs> because you have to you have to build additional <laughs> scenarios in that have never been required before. And like we have kind of started talking about, like this is the first of many of these things that are going to happen. And so like I, I always, right. you know, you, you don't want to over respond to the first one because obviously things are going to spike and then settle. But at the same time, like you kind of have to go to that next level and say, how does this affect the code? How does this affect policy? How does this affect the advice that we give people who are building buildings or in the middle of building or designing buildings right now so that those buildings are effective and flexible and they do allow for some of these things that we're talking about. It's a very complicated problem set. And it seems to me like the more really, the really engaged brains, the better on this kind of a thing. So that yeah, we can come up absolutely. with guidelines that help the greater community, not just small little silos here and there. Totally agree with you. I don't know if I feel any better about this. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is that you literally have to be, you know, I, I constantly call myself the alarmist on the project team because I'm always raising an alarm one way, shape or form. And so, okay, well, if you're going to do that, then have you thought about this, 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 and this. And, you know, those are the conversations that we as architects and, you know, we as architects need to lead our clients in having, we need to have them amongst ourselves with, okay, well, what does this really mean if you do that? And then we need to like be the educator to the clients. It's like, okay, if if you want to do this, 
this is what you need to do. And you need to like, you know, come in with your whole, like, you know how, like a lot of times we go into project meetings and you don't really want to overwhelm the client. So you bring a small group of people in because again, you just don't want to overwhelm them. And, and I don't know if you've ever had that, but I, I have yeah, that totally, all the time. Where totally. It's just like, you show up with 10 people and it's like, what? Just a small group, just a small group. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, you know, why? But now, honestly, that's the com- that's where the conversation is going to need to go. You're going to need to have a room full of experts. Right. And I'm not going to come in there as an HVAC expert telling, you know, you that this mechanical system, whereas I may understand the mechanical system for, you know, medium to large size buildings and things like that, I'm not going to be the one who's going to tell them you know, what they need to do with their particular equipment. And I'm not the one that's best suited for assessing their existing equipment and saying that, okay, to meet pandemic needs, you're going to need to do, you know, this to your uh, equipment. I'm going to say, okay, here's what your building has right now. And for you to operate in this mode or that mode or that mode, Mm -hmm. you need to do this or this or this. (laughs) Right. And so we're going to be bombarding them with so many experts on the matter just because we, as much as we're convincing ourselves that this is the way it should be, we need to convince them that this is the way they they need to do it. And then they need to then overlay and inform us, overlay their operational sequence of things and say, okay, this is how we operate our building on a normal, but, you know, help us understand our building so then we can tell you how we would then operate our building and an abnormal. It's uh, it it is interesting to think about when you're dealing with that layer of, you know, some may call it bureaucracy when you're designing the building because they're not typically the end users. And then we kind of go back to where this conversation started around real observation of people in, you know, just out and about and how things are changing, um, and kind of bringing all of that perspective to the table and then bringing the building science perspective to the table and the health, safety and welfare and the code and all of these things. Like this really does start to get to where the value of an architect really lies. And like you said, we are really well suited to do that, but I think we have to, we have to be ready to step up to the plate when it's, yeah, which is now right. Right. To actually do that. And yeah, and also just really take it to heart that we are the ones who have that value to give. We have to be willing and able to do that. And we should be. And to me, like that kind of paints an interesting path for the future of architecture as far as what we're capable of doing. And then you layer in equity and diversity and all of these other issues that are happening that are rising and bubbling to the top right now. Right, right. Uh, man. What a puzzle. What a puzzle to solve. It's incredible. You know, and, and, and if you think about it, so many different aspects in our human history. And there has been a lot of times where an architectural response is always needed, maybe not to serve the, you know, let's solve you know all these different issues that we have. I mean, God, I mean, we could depress the living shit of ourselves right. of all the different issues that are going on right now. But how are architects best suited to help with all of that? What can we do to the built environment to, you know, make people feel like, you know, this is an inclusive space, that this is a safe space, that this is a space that is for everyone and not just for a select few. Having the hard conversations, you know, talking about does, you know, normal operation of certain building types promote certain behaviors over another one and you know to kind of take it back to one of your original thoughts on like just being that almost sociologist you know um just looking at people and how they act and interact and um, come in as a community and you know and just looking at them and trying to understand you know what is you know what can we do to help this you know make this situation a little bit better and you know it's it's creating you know spaces that have far more open arms than, than closed and shut off. I mean, you know, what's interesting is like, you see one of the things that I thought was kind of almost a, I don't really want to call it a disaster, but it was some interesting thinking that was going on during, you know, this, the, the rash of school shootings. And, and I'm absolutely not making light of this, the situation, but the architectural responses that were coming from some of the, you know, quote unquote experts, but they weren't architects. 
where these defensible space at that were essentially creating like a prison like yeah. environment. I was, was going to say the same thing. And yeah. you talk about, you know, is this an enriching space? Is this a space that promotes equity and, you know, and, and just, you know, like in, in everything. And yes, we are trying to protect, you know, people with, you know, certain aspects of how we design and, you know, let's just talk about schools and how we design schools. You know, we, we, you know, I know that you've thought about it and I know that I've thought about it on numerous occasions when we were doing K through 12, you know, and, and how do we make a safe environment, but also an enriching and, you know, learning environment, yeah. an environment that they feel safe, but it's also something that, you know, promotes education. And, you know, there's just so many different layers upon layers upon layers that you need to take into account that really who is the best person to have at a table when you're talking about policies that, you know, affect the way that you, know, you would design a building. You know, you have like these, you know, all the, again, like I said, all these different experts that think, you know, that think about, and I am blanking on the acronym for, you know, basically school safety that had, you know, come out through numerous different, you know, meetings and stuff. And, you know, I was doing some research and not one person on that committee that was looking into school safety was an architect. And that was the one person that they needed to have at the table. Listen to all the experts about, you know, defensible spaces and stuff like that. But then how do you actually implement that idea? Well, who's best to ask, but the person right. who's going to actually be in implementing that idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we are, we're at a unique, we have a unique opportunity to revolutionize architecture here and the value of an architect. And we just have to be willing to step up to the plate, right. And rise to that occasion to make it happen or to help make that happen, or at least give it the opportunity for that to happen. The only way to do that is to get involved and to engage and, and dig deep. Like, I, I think that that's one of the things that, you know, as you're talking about addressing these issues, there's no way to address them at the surface level. You have to get right, right. educated on all of these different issues and start to connect the dots between them. Uh, and, and otherwise, like, you're, you're, just, you're just barely skating by, right? You're doing the absolute minimum. And I think that our clients deserve more than that. And I think that society deserves more than that from us as a profession. So it would be really amazing to see, you know, right. the AIA or any other professional group of people start to publish information that's useful for all architects. And maybe that's happening, maybe I'm just not aware of it. I would love to know if that is happening so that we can help promote that on this show. So if if you listeners out there if you know of of things that are going on like that, I'm sure that there there is and maybe I'm just not aware of it. So maybe Noma's doing stuff like that. Maybe there are things being published by the AIA and code councils and guidelines and, and all these different things for the various places that we practice architecture. And uh, I know like at, in our firm, we're doing a ton of research and we're going to be publishing that out so that our clients have a clue what to do. Because a lot of them are coming to us saying, help us. How do we do right. this? What do we, what do we need to be aware of? What do we need to deal with? And so we've been deep in a research initiative and we're going to be publishing that. So I'm excited to see what comes out of that. And I hope that that is useful for the greater architectural community so that not everybody has to reinvent the wheel. I think that's a that's a huge issue that's plagued us in the past and kept the profession from moving forward. So I'm, I'm really hoping that having these kind of critical conversations about this kind of stuff can help raise awareness and give people the knowledge that they need so that they can actually do something useful with it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a it's been a great conversation, and I, I it hasn't been a light conversation. And I know you're on vacation, so um, I'm hoping that you can disconnect <laughs> and uh, and get away and and not feel like uh, you're too connected to to all this craziness that's going on. But I'm I'm happy that you're you're out floating on a boat right now, and or or you will be tomorrow again. Yes, unfortunately, I haven't disconnected enough as I um, probably should have, but I never really actually came here. Yeah, you can't take Zoom calls. On a kayak. But you can. <laughs> but you-, <laughs> you can, you can, and I did. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And if I can just say that every single solitary architect out there needs to be a leader in not just architecture, but in the, th- in the pursuits of your life that you actually feel the most passionate about. Because bringing that passion into our profession 
is something that for the longest time has been so closed off and so monochromatic that, you know, everybody who is wanting to be a part of this profession needs to be fully welcomed and fully embrace who they are and what they're passionate about to bring into this profession, to enrich it and to become leaders in not just buildings, but building environments, building environments that are, that stretch far beyond just, you know, the regular um, four walls and a roof, but, you know, something greater than that. And, you know, a lot of people want to call it a, you know, very tenuous and, and almost scary time. I don't look at it this way. I, I look at it as that we're in a very exciting time. And yes, there are a lot of things that we, you know, a lot of like um, hard feelings and anger and disgust that people have for one another right now that, you know, we're, we've got to get past. But the only way you can get past it is talking about it, bring it up. People say the only way to, you know, get past all of this is let's just not talk about it. No, no, no. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about everything, you know, and in the, the beauty of the, the evolution of the term Jedi, you know, of justice equity, diversity, and inclusion is it really means something more than just damn buildings. And, you know, for people to be very passionate about it. And I absolutely love our circle of friends who are extraordinarily passionate about it to bring that as part of the roots. It it is, it's, it's burying itself into the roots of, of what architecture is about now. And it just, it makes me feel very happy that we've you know, surrounded ourselves with, you know, some of the most open-minded and progressive people that is going to really change this uh, profession for the better. Yeah, absolutely. And just so maybe people have a little bit more to chew on there with the whole Jedi thing, it would be cool. We didn't, we haven't had a chance to do that on this show yet, but plug the RCAST 2020 live stream that we did a week or two ago, where we got three, yeah. four, four different podcasts together and kind of reprised our live on the show floor at the AIA conference uh, in 2019 that we did in Vegas, where we had a bunch of special guests join us and we did a live cast then. We did it again this time, but it was virtual. And I thought that, you know, overall the message this time was loud and clear. It was all about the, the things that you were just yeah. mentioning. So uh, rcast2020.com yeah. is where you can watch that live stream video recording and uh, all of the guests that we had on there were just amazing. And I really felt like I was quiet most of the time because I was just, I was learning so much and I felt like that was a great opportunity to learn. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just, I, I mean, <laughs> I had some friends who were texting me while we were, you know, alive and they were just like, you're not talking. I'm like, I know I'm listening and, yeah. and I'm, I, I really truly want to listen because, you know, mine is not the only voice out there that needs to be heard. You know, everybody's voice needs to be heard. And, you know, here we have, you know, so many bit different people from so many different walks of lives that have experienced so many different things throughout architecture, you know, through generations of experience through architecture. And it was just great to sit down and listen to, to them. And I'd love to do that more and more and more and, and, you know, really encourage people that, you know, if they do go and watch the, the RCAST 2020 that, you know, really look at and really pay attention to, you know, the conversations that are being had and have those similar conversations, have your own conversations about how you're going to improve everything about architecture. You know, I mean, you know, throughout the, the life of this podcast, we've talked about diversity and equity and, and live work balance and just, you know, how things are within the actual office and how do projects run and just all of these different things in you know, we're at an opportunity where like the, the wealth of information that we have within this profession can make all of that so much yeah. better if we were if we're just willing to listen. I think that's a great place to cut it off until next time. Yeah. Thanks. This was great. Yeah. Good conversation. Have a great vacation, Cormac. I'm really happy that you're out and about and uh, not stuck at home like me. Single tear. All right, that might be all for this episode, but maybe listen to the end just in case. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. See all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out. And don't forget to share it with your friends. 
We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com, where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. This is what you get. This is what you get. This is a schedule. This is a set. It's unpredictable, as you forget. If you blow, you can bet. I know, I know, I know. This is what you get. This is a schedule. This is a set. It's unpredictable, as you forget. If you blow, you can bet. I know, I know, I know. I know, I know